Well, hi. Yeah, this is a new, new view for me. If you're new to Desert Springs Church, my name is Drew, and I'm the music minister here, so I'm typically leading the singing, not the preaching. Uh, if you're regular to Desert Springs, this is just as weird for me as it is for you. Um, this is not a drill. This is not an emergency. This was the plan. Ryan's fine. Uh, Asher's fine. Ron's fine. Everybody's fine. Um, Ryan graciously asked me to preach, and I gladly accepted. It's a, a good opportunity for me to share the word with you guys in a form other than music. Um, so I'm as nervous as you are, but we'll get through this together. So if you would, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. If you need a Bible, there are some Bibles around the half walls. If you're using those Bibles, it's on page 809, page 809. As you're turning there, I used to give the devil way too much credit when I was a kid. Basically, every time I would sin or stumble or get in trouble with my parents, I would blame it on the devil. Oh, the devil got me. The devil won this round. The devil tricked me. And I could imagine the devil standing there saying, that's not me, man. You're doing just fine by yourself. <laughs> I didn't quite understand the depth of my own sin and depravity that was inside of me. But now as an adult, I worry that I've gone the other way and I don't give enough care and thought to the devil's schemes and how he would try to deceive me. So tonight in our text, we will see how Jesus handles the devil, that he neither under or overestimates the devil, but knows exactly how to handle him. We'll see that Jesus is the, the blessed man that we've looked at in Psalm 1 and Psalm 119 that Ryan taught us on Sunday, and we're looking at on Sundays, that he is blameless, that he does no wrong, that he guards his purity with God's word. And more than all of that, I hope that we will see and that we will savor the beauty of Jesus, his identity as the true and obedient Son of God. So let us look to God's word together. Matthew 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to the very high mountain, to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came 
and we're ministering to him. This is God's word for us tonight. So let us set the stage for what's happening here in Matthew chapter 4. Just in the previous chapter, chapter 3, Jesus comes onto the scene. You have John the Baptist preparing the way, proclaiming the one who would come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus shows up. He's finally here, the promised one, the one we've been waiting for. He's baptized. The Spirit of God descends upon Jesus like a dove. And then the voice of God calls from heaven, this is my son. There's fireworks. The disciples are walking around with t-shirt cannons, poof, just firing off t-shirts. Everybody's got to be thinking, this is it. This is what we've all been waiting for. This, this made the Super Bowl halftime show look like a middle school play. It was spectacular. But then something peculiar happens. Jesus leaves the baptism and goes off alone into the wilderness. You're, you're thinking, what? If you, if you were there, if you're one of Jesus' disciples, you'd be thinking, Jesus, uh, Jerusalem's that way. Like, we need to go and, and do this. It was a strange way to start his ministry. He was breaking all the rules of, of the how to launch a successful ministry or launch a successful campaign. But he had a different agenda. He had the Father's agenda. He was filled by the Spirit, we see in the Luke account of this same story. And he, as we see here in Matthew, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. So we see that he is going to be tempted. He's being led by the Spirit, by the will of the Father. We see the Trinity at work here as the Father tests the Son in the wilderness, and is led by the Spirit. He goes out and doesn't eat for 40 days. So we're going to look at this in three parts. We're going to look at Jesus, the man, first, and then we'll break down the devil's temptations, and then we'll look at Jesus' responses. So first we see a weakened son. We're going to look at the man, Jesus, after 40 days and 40 nights, it says he was hungry, which would seem like a huge understatement. I can't go four hours without eating food, or I become a danger to myself and those around me. So 40 days, yes, clearly he was hungry. It would seem like an understatement, but it's actually a very important statement because it shows Christ's humanity. Christ was hungry. He felt hunger. He felt pain. He felt sorrow. He was not immune to basic needs. It also shows that Christ was at his weakest physical state. I can imagine that trying to fast for 40 days in the most ideal circumstances would be difficult. Imagine doing it in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. He didn't go home to sleep in his bed and then come back out to the wilderness. He was out there the whole time. And Jesus never got hangry. As, as many of us do, where we have hunger and anger blended together. We've all seen the Snickers commercial. We know what it's like. Also, he was alone. We see that Jesus was alone. He didn't take any disciples with him. He had no companion with him. And we know the danger of isolation and what that can do. But he was alone, but he wasn't on his own because we see that he was filled and led by the Spirit. So he still had communion with the Trinity, even on his own. 
So we'll see him go toe-to-toe, blow-to-blow with the devil on his worst day and still win. Compare this to Adam back in the garden. The most perfect circumstances. Adam, perfect in his body, perfect in nature. All that he could want, the perfect conditions in the garden. Every, every, could eat of every tree of the garden. Had Eve as a companion, a perfect companion and compliment to himself. And he was tempted and he did not remain true. can also compare it to Israel. So Adam was considered the son of God. Israel was called the son of God. And Israel had similar conditions. We see the parallel 40 years in the wilderness as they were led by Moses. And we see 40 days here, Jesus being led by the Spirit. But there was provision for the Israelites. They had manna from heaven. But they would still complain, and they still doubted God. And they were not true. So why is it so important that we see Christ as human? Why does that matter? Well, the New City Catechism has helped our family to understand this concept. And I think it's question 21. It asks, what sort of redeemer is necessary to bring us back to God? And if my kids were paying attention right now, they would say, one who is truly human and also truly God. Then the next question asks, why does the Redeemer, why must the Redeemer be truly human? And the answer is that in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the law and suffer the punishment for human sin and also that he might sympathize with our weaknesses. We see this also in Hebrews chapter 2. The writer says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So we need a representative, and we need one that is better than Adam, one that is better than Israel. We need Jesus as our representative. We need one who is like us in every respect, in every human way but sin. It's the only way we can be confident that our sins are forgiven. Jesus, fully man and fully God, and fully hungry and weak and alone. So what better time for the snake to strike So that was number one. We see weak in man. We see Jesus hungry and human. Number two, we see a wily serpent. Serpent is crafty. It's clever in his temptations. We're going to look at all three temptations in this section to see what's unique about them, to see what they have in common. It says in verse three, Jesus, or excuse me, Satan says to Jesus, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. We call this the first temptation, the temptation of the heart. So Satan slithers up and right off the bat casts doubt and challenges and questions Jesus' identity as the son. He says, if you're the son, why don't you do this? Why don't you prove it? He questions God's goodness and provision for Jesus. He appeals to Jesus' hunger for food. 
We've seen this before, haven't we? Satan using food to tempt. He did it to Eve and Adam in the garden. He's offering Jesus a different path, a path that Jesus is not currently on, a path that is full of ease and health and comfort. What's the big deal? Just turn the rocks into bread. He's not asking Jesus to steal or lie. So what's, what's the big deal? We'll see later on in the book of Matthew and the other Gospels that Jesus feeds the 5,000. He does miraculous things with bread. He's not anti-bread. Jesus isn't going gluten-free. <laughs> he's, he's clearly on a mission here, and Satan is trying to distract him from that. So at what cost? What would it cost Jesus to turn the stones into bread? Well, it would cost him doubting God. He would be doubting God. He would be taking the easy way out. Satan is trying to get Jesus to take things, take matters into his own hands, to do it his own way, not God's way, not the Father's way. He wants Jesus to doubt God's provision. He wants Jesus to follow his heart as we're told so often to do. So that's the first temptation. Second temptation, the temptation of the soul or of life. It says in verse 6, Again, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So we go up in elevation here. We're on the ground getting bread. We're going up. He takes him to the top of the temple and says, Throw yourself down. And then he quotes Scripture. Quotes Psalm 91. Doesn't mis misquote, actually quotes scripture and says, Throw yourself down, for God will protect you, right? You'll command angels, they'll swoop you up, you'll be fine. Again, this sounds familiar. Sounds like Satan is saying, Has God truly said? Or, You shall not surely die. The same thing we've heard in the garden. Satan is asking Jesus to test God, to test God like they did in, in the wilderness, like the Israelites did in the wilderness when they stopped, stopped believing that God would provide for them. It's spiritual blackmail. It's saying, God, if I do this, then you must do this. God, if you're out there, give me a sign. You owe me. I've been faithful. Satan doesn't misquote scripture, but Satan misapplies scripture. And oh, how dangerous that can be. We have seen many, many false religions come from misapplying scripture. Not necessarily, not just misquoting. So he is, in a way, twisting it to misapply it to what Jesus is doing. And he wants Jesus to doubt God. He wants Jesus to doubt God's protection. So first it was his provision, then now his protection. And with the, if you are the son of God, we hear echoes from the crowd at the cross. If you're the son of God, come down from there and we'll believe you. They wanted Jesus to take a different path. A path that led away from the cross. Another thing I found interesting is that in quoting Psalm 91, Satan spoke better than he knew. It goes on in the very next verse after he, he quotes in, in Psalm 91. The very next verse says, The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Satan actually quotes his own demise. 
He's the roaring lion seeking who he may devour, that Jesus will shut up by his word, and he is the serpent that will be crushed. So we see even there uh, Satan's demise. So doubting God's provision, doubting God's protection. And then a third temptation, called this the temptation of might or strength. In verse 8, he says again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. So again, we're going up in elevation. We were on the ground. We were on the pinnacle of the temple. Now we're on a very high mountain. And you could imagine this, this might have been a vision that the devil showed Jesus. It would have been difficult to find one mountain that saw all the kingdoms of the world, whether it was a vision or he actually teleported teleported to a high mountain. Either way, Satan is upping the stakes. So we've gone, from, we've gone from sustenance with food to security and safety and then to strength and power and glory in all the kingdoms of the world in, in the glory. And you would think, well, that sounds pretty good. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't Jesus want to do that? All he has to do is bow down and worship him. Maybe Jesus could do it in a way that wouldn't you know, really compromise who he is. He could cross his fingers behind his back, not really mean it, that kind of thing. But really what he's doing is he's offering Jesus glory without Golgotha, without the place where Jesus would die. He wants to make Jesus a Satan worshiper which would be the antithesis of who Jesus is. People have sold their souls to Satan. We've heard that expression. They've done it for much less than all the kingdoms of the world in this glory. You might be thinking, how can Satan offer all of this? How can Satan offer him all the kingdoms of the world in the glory? Well, we see a few pla- several places in Scripture that Satan is referred to as the ruler of this world. That's in John 14. And the God of this age in 2 Corinthians 4. So there's, there's clearly a sense in which Satan has some lowercase o ownership of this world here and now that God has allowed temporarily. So he has a lot to offer. Or so it seems. Satan is also missing that irony. He's talking to God and offering God all the things that God already owns. He's talking to Jesus. Jesus is God. He already owns everything. And also, Christ will be exalted. Christ will be lifted up on a cross. And Satan will bruise his heel, but Christ will crush his head. So Christ will be exalted, just not in the way Satan thought or was trying to get Jesus to exalt himself. He would be exalted on the cross. So there's our three temptations. So they are unique. They're unique to Jesus. They're unique and they challenge his identity. But let's think about what they all have in common. So what the three temptations have in common, I have three D words for you. Doubt, disobedience, and dependence. So all three of them have this in common. They want Jesus to doubt God's provision his protection, his power. They want Jesus to disobey God's word. And they want 
Jesus to depend upon himself rather than on God. And I hope that the Holy Spirit is convicting all of us as it has me in preaching this and studying this and seeing how we can all give in to these same temptations. So right now we need to hit pause on the outline and and talk about the idea of Christ's sinlessness. Could Christ have sinned? Could Christ have given in to the temptations? We We would say no. In his divine nature, Christ could not sin. He was perfect in his nature. So some would argue that that fact that Christ could not sin somehow makes the temptations less credible or less impactful for Christ, who Christ is. But I would argue it's the contrary. Not only does it confirm his identity as fully God and fully man, that he cannot sin in his divine nature and that he's the perfect son of God, but who feels the temptation most? The one who gives in to the temptation and fails, or the one who resists the temptation? Who feels the weight under the bar more? The strong man who lifts the weight and resists it, or the weak man who's crushed by the weight? So, no, God, Christ's sinlessness intensifies the temptation, not lessens it. It shows that Christ understood and felt temptation in ways that we sinners never could fully understand. So back to the temptations and what they have in common. Another thing that ties them together is the Shema. The Shema, shema is, a, is a Hebrew word for listen or hear, and it's shorthand for the prayer that we find in Deuteronomy chapter 4. You'll be familiar with it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, or with all your strength. And it goes on from there. But that was a, a common Hebrew prayer. And I see the three temptations as a sort of anti-Shema. Because the Shema isn't just about listening, but about obeying what you hear. It's about obedience and everything we think, say, and do. And Satan wants Jesus to go his own way. He wants Jesus to not listen, to not hear, to not obey, to not love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And ultimately, he wants Jesus to sidestep the cross and go on a, another path of lesser glory. But we see Jesus is the true and better Hebrew. He will keep the Shema. So let us look at number three, a wilderness one. Finally, finally, a faithful son. Adam failed in the garden. Israel failed in the wilderness. David failed. Everyone that came before, after a long line of losers and failures, we finally have a faithful son. So let's look at all three responses. We've seen the temptations. Now let's see Jesus' response. So, or the rebukes. The first rebuke. In verse 4, after Satan says, if you're hungry, turn the rocks into bread. Christ's response, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
Jesus quotes scripture. It's from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And Jesus is proving that he is trusting the Father to provide. Another thing that's showing is that Jesus is not a common street magician. He's not just going to do whatever tricks the kids on the street want him to do. None of his miracles or expressions of his miraculous power are self-serving or selfish. They're always to serve others, to heal others. In a sense, his miracles and miraculous power are always reversing the curse or putting the fruit back on the tree. So he's not going to do this just because Satan asked him to. And he's not going to do it because it would not prove it would prove that he's not trusting the Father. So he hi- takes the word out of his heart that he has hidden and uses it to fight against Satan and to say, no, I will trust God. He shows that it's better to die of hunger, trusting God and obeying God, than it would be to live well-fed your whole life and disobey God and die without him. He also says in John 4 that this is my food to do the will of the Father. So he trusts the Father to sustain him. He knows that God will keep him. He knows and he trusts in, in the Father's timing of events. He knows that when he needs to eat, he will eat. And he knows that when he needs to die, he will die. He's not going to hit fast forward. He's not going to serve himself. So we see that Jesus loves God with all of his heart, with all of his health. Second, second rebuke, the rebuke of the soul or of life. Verse 7, again, it's written, after, after Satan has tempted him to cast himself off the temple, angels will catch you, quotes, quotes Psalm 91. Again, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Can you imagine walking into your, a college class first, first day and you go into advanced physics, something that has a subtitle that I can't even understand, and you walk up to the teacher and hand the teacher a test and say, get that back to me. I just want to make sure you, you understand the material that you're going to cover and you're going to teach me. That's, yeah, it's ridiculous. But that's what basically what Satan is asking Jesus to do is to... Give the teacher, the father, a test. Not but Jesus trust him, trust him completely. Uh, you see, you see the if, if, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, and it kind of it sounded to me like being on the playground as a kid, somebody saying, "What are you chicken? Are you chicken? Do it. Are you scared? Do it." Somebody says it twice, calls you a chicken twice. You're doing the thing, whatever it is. Not Jesus. He knew better. He wasn't going to test God. He doesn't presume upon God's care. He knows God cares. He has proved him or and or, as we often say. He simply wasn't going to play the devil's games. He wasn't going to play by the devil's rules. He fully entrusted his soul to the Father. And he loved God with all of his soul. Third rebuke, see this rebuke, rebuke of strength and glory and power and might. After Satan takes him up at the top of the mountain, says, you can have all the glory, all the kingdoms, just bow down and worship me. Finally, Jesus, in verse 10, says, 
Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus was trusting in the Father's power here. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6. And again, we see Satan raises the stakes. So from first bread to life, now to all the kingdoms of the world, Satan has just gone all in and is trying to get Jesus to do anything to go off of his path. But what was he really offering in offering him all the kingdoms of this world and all the glory if he just had to bow? What was he really offering? He was offering Jesus idolatry. He was offering Jesus slavery, slavery to him, slavery to Satan. He was offering temporary artificial glory, glory that, was, that would not last. It was not real glory. And we see Christ obedient to the law. We see him keep the first and second commandments. He will not have any other gods before God, and he will not have any idols. So he keeps the law. He will not be made an idolater, unlike the Israelites in the wilderness who followed after other gods, who made their own god out of their golden calf. Then there's be gone. Finally, Jesus is, is done. He's fed up. Fed up with Satan's nonsense. He says, be gone. And I, as I thought about it, and as I talked about it with Ryan, Ryan said, that's what Adam should have done. And I'm, yes, that's what Adam should have done in the garden. Adam had dominion and authority over the serpent. He should have said, be gone, serpent. Get your nonsense out of here. Go crawl back to whatever you're doing and stop messing with my wife. But he failed. But here we see Jesus succeed in exercising authority and dominion over Satan. He cast him out as God did the serpent from, from the garden. Also, we see the same kind of language in Matthew 16 when Jesus says to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. He says that to Peter. Why? It's a strong language. Because Peter was trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross. The same thing that Satan's trying to do here. And Jesus will have none of it. Anything keeping Jesus from the cross is satanic. Anything that takes the cross out of Christianity is satanic. Anything that takes suffering and weakness and pain out of Christianity and away from Christ is satanic. And it should be rejected. Christ would not take a shortcut to glory. He kept his eye on the prize. And for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. It says in Hebrews 12. So not only he endured shame and death, but he still got the glory. All the kingdoms of this world and their glory weren't enough. Jesus was after more than that. He would have all glory in heaven and earth. He would reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. And not only that, but he would have a people, a people for himself purchased by his blood. Oh no, Satan, Satan couldn't give him all that. And Jesus says, be gone. He says, I have a cross to bear and a people to win. He loved the Lord his God with all his strength.
So then we see the devil leave in verse 11. The devil leaves and angels come to minister Jesus, minister to Jesus. So it's interesting now the angels show up, but I think it shows, again, Christ's humanity. He was in bad shape. He'd used all his strength. He fought and he won. He's like a prized fighter that gave everything he had in the ring. And then finally, those come to his aid at the ring in the corner. Shows his authority. Satan obeys and leaves whenever Jesus says, be gone. And angels come to serve him. And it shows his identity as the true son of God, the faithful son. And it also it fulfills scripture. It fulfills the script, very scripture that Satan just quoted to Jesus in Psalm 91. It says, you will command angels. And then the angels show up, just not when Satan wanted them to. So he had given everything, and he had triumphed. Here's Jesus. Triumph over Satan as a foretaste to triumphing over Satan and sin and death on the cross. He proved to be the true Adam, the true Israel, and the true king. Oh, what a wondrous mystery. He, the perfect son of man, in his living and his suffering, never trace nor stain of sin. Oh, and I'm forgetting the lyric. Somebody help me out. See the true and better Adam come to save. I have to sing it. Save the hellbound man. Sing it with me, Lucas. Christ the great and sure fulfillment of the law in him we stand. Amen. Yes, do you stand in this Jesus? If you're here tonight and you don't know what I'm talking about, and hopefully it's not because I'm the music guy trying to preach, but because you don't know Jesus in this way, you don't stand in him, you haven't tasted Jesus as the bread of life. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Any who would come after me shall never hunger and never thirst. Have you tasted and seen that he alone is good, that he alone can satisfy? To be saved, you must agree with God on at least two things. You must agree with God about your sin, that you are a sinner, that you have broken God's law, and that you deserve his just judgment. You must agree with God about his son. You must agree with God about what he says, who Jesus is, and what Jesus did in living and dying and rising again in victory over sin and death. Do you believe that? Believe it. Believe today. And for all of us, let's see what all three of these responses or rebukes have in common. So there are two common themes throughout all three rebukes, and that's trust and obedience. Here we see Christ as he wields the weapon of the word. He puts on the whole armor of God that he might stand firm and resist the devil, and the devil runs away. He slays the serpent with the sword of the spirit. Satan's arrows shatter on his shield of faith. Christ chose death over disobedience, a cross over a crown, pain over power. He chose to be a suffering servant over a conquering king. When Israel failed, Christ was faithful. When Adam fell, Jesus fought and won. Obedient all the way, all the way to death, even death on a cross. Oh, guilty, vile, helpless we, spotless Lamb of God, 
was he. Full atonement, we're about to sing. Can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior. We see Jesus is the true and obedient Son of God. But we also see him as our example. So will we follow his lead up the narrow path filled with pain and with suffering, but that leads to glory and to life? Or will we follow Satan down the wide path that's full of comfort and ease, but leads to death? So quickly, let's look at some ways that we follow Satan, whether we realize it or not. Some ways that we fall to Satan's temptations. So I think from this text we can see that, there, that we could be idols of food and comfort. That we can be idols of the physical over the spiritual. I'm certainly guilty of getting caught up in the next wave of fad diets and considering what, what we should eat constantly and thinking, always thinking about my next meal and what I'm going to eat and what am I going to look like if I eat that and, and what it, what's it going to do to my body. And thinking about comfort security. This is all us making good things the main thing. And that's idolatry. And that's what Satan was trying to get Jesus to do. We can also doubt God. We doubt God's goodness. We doubt God's provision for his protection, for his power. I'm not saying don't lock your doors at night. But it's where we place our priorities. It's where we place our trust. Are you trusting that lock? Or are you trusting the God of the universe? There's also presumption, the sin of presumption. Don't presume upon God's goodness to keep you out of temptation. We don't walk the line of temptation and expect God to keep us from it. We flee from temptation. We get as far from the line as possible. And then parents... Feed your kids more than food. Your kids' souls are at stake. So what are you equipping them with to face temptation that they will face sooner rather than later? The same temptations that we faced. Sure, food and provision, safety, health, we want, we want all that for our children. But there's so much more. Fill them with God's word. We give in to the temptation of laziness and busyness. But your kids' academic and athletic achievements are not going to save them. And I have nothing against academics or athletics. Fill them with God's word. That is food for their souls. The last point of application. The prosperity gospel is a lie from the pit of hell. It reduces God to a cosmic genie and it lies to all its consumers. Believer, God does love you and has a wonderful plan for your life, but that plan may include the death of a child. That plan may include cancer. That plan may include chronic illness or poverty. That plan is still good, and it is right, and it is for God's glory, and it is for our good. So you can name and claim all you want, but the only name that matters is the name of Jesus, and the only claim that matters is the claim that he has to the throne.
So let us reject the lie of the prosperity gospel. It is no gospel at all. It is a lie, and it is deceiving many. So, how do we follow Jesus? How do we follow his example? He gives us a template for fighting temptation. So, a few K words. I don't know if you've noticed, but I like alliteration. So, a few K words. Know and apply the word. Know and apply the word. So, apply it correctly. It's not just enough to know it. Satan knew the word and quoted it to Jesus. You must know it and apply it correctly. Misapplying scripture is extremely dangerous. Excuse me. So how do we practice applying the word? How do we get better at applying the word? Well, we study, we grow. We're discipled by older, more godly believers that will help us and help us see the error of our word application. So look, look for someone to show you, to disciple you, study God's word, practice wielding the word. Know your weakness, know where you're tempted, and memorize scripture that speaks to that temptation. Avoid the occasion for that temptation, when you're weak or when you're alone, whatever it is, avoid it. Give give no opportunity for the devil. Be prepared. Be prepared and on guard. So when temptation does spring up, you're not caught off guard. And kill the snake. Don't don't keep a pet snake and hold it. I don't know if any of you actually have pet snakes, but just for the sake of illustration, let's pretend like we don't because that's weird. Don't hold the snake and, and play with the snake. Have a pet snake. The snake will bite you eventually. The snake, or it will slowly strangle you and kill you. Kill it. Fight your sin like your soul depends on it. And then keep trusting. Keep trusting. It may be a long season of temptation, but no matter how long it is, it is always temporary. There will be an end. And then finally, kneel. Kneel before the throne of grace to find help in your time of need. Jesus sympathizes with all our weaknesses. He was tempted as we are, but without sin. And if you give in to that temptation, know that you have an advocate with the Father. Run to him in faith. Run to him in forgiveness. He is good. And no good Southern Baptist sermon would be complete without three points and a Spurgeon quote, so here's mine. For any of you struggling with temptation, Spurgeon encourages you with this. We are not alarmed because Satan hindereth us, for it is proof that we are on the Lord's side. And are doing the Lord's work. And in his strength we shall see the victory and triumph over our adversary. Yes and amen. The devil can be defeated because he has been defeated through the cross. We need to be reminded. And thankfully, the Lord gave us a meal to remember. A memorial meal. The symbols of the bread and cup to again taste and see the Lord is good to see his body broken, his blood shed for us. We remember not only his death, but also his life, his righteousness, his obedience that is ours in the cross. So let us partake in remembrance, but let us partake in joy and in worship as we come because our sins are forgiven. Our Father, you are holy, holy, holy. Help us to be holy, to be holy like you, to obey like your son did. 
Help us to be satisfied in you, our daily bread. Lead us not into temptation, but if you do, deliver us from evil as you delivered your son through faith and obedience to your word. Help us now to consider in silence our sin, the price of our sin, the cross, and the payment for our sin, Jesus' blood. Search us, O God, and lead us in the way everlasting.